in a series through 1 John called Becoming Like Jesus. Today's sermon is called A Triad of Christlikeness, Part 2, Obeying. Last week we did Part 1 on what it means to know Jesus, and I really encourage you to go back and listen to that to get some context for today if you weren't here last week. Um, today I'm going to read a couple places from John, John 2 and John 5, so please follow along. If you have a Bible, I'll have you turn and flip and stuff like that, and I'll read this text this evening, and then I'll pray. 1 John chapter 2, verses uh, 3 through 6. 1 John 3 through 6. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Skip down to verse 15, chapter 2, verse 15 through 17. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love, of the, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever." Chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is Christ is that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God to keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is God's uh, word. Let's pray. Lord, I ask tonight that you would give us um, hearts that are really ready and willing to receive uh, this, the, the, the word of God tonight. Um, I want to pray that our church, through this, this series in First John, and as we talk about what it means to become like you, God, um, it would terraform our, our hearts and our souls and our, even our minds, God, to like, this is what it looks like. This is what it means to follow you. Help me, Lord, tonight to be clear. Help me to be um, like here now, like my mind and my body and my and where, where I'm, and how I'm pastoring tonight, let me be here, God. I, I really desire to, um, to teach to where we can understand and live in this. So I need your help. I just confess that tonight. I desperately need your help. And so we look to you, God. We look to you to, to teach us. We're not here because um, this is some social club. We really want to be changed by you. And so I ask for faith, God. Give us faith to receive the things that you want to teach us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. A few months ago, um, as I was beginning to pray through um, and work on this sermon series through 1 John, I was really wanting to call this series Following Jesus for Reals. That was like the working title of this series. I, I really, I gave that to our communications department. I'm like, I really want to do this teaching through 1 John called Following Jesus for Reals, and it obviously didn't make the cut. <clears throat> so we talk a lot about following Jesus in our church. It's a part of our vision statement. We, we actually have said in our vision statement, our say in our vision statement, we are a community 
following Jesus. But that can, that can like, um, can take, we can take that to mean a lot of different things. We can take that to mean, well, I follow Jesus because I go to church or I go to a community group, therefore I follow Jesus. Or I pray in the morning, therefore I follow Jesus. Or I try to live better, or some might say I try to live more holy, therefore I follow Jesus. Or I confess my sin and receive communion almost weekly, therefore I follow Jesus. And some of that, if not all of that, is definitely part of it. But what, it, what does it mean to follow Jesus for reals? Like to get to the core of what it means to follow Jesus Christ, what does that look like? And last week we began this little trilogy of teachings on Christ-likeness saying that if we were brought to trial in a court of law and accused of being a Christian, what characteristics would we have to exhibit for there to be enough evidence to convict us? And I think this is an important question because there's a lot of confusion at what lies at the center of the practice of the Christian faith. What about following Jesus is demanded, and what is negotiable? What is essential to discipleship to Christ, and what is optional? This is what we're trying to get to the bottom of in this series. And John has taken a lot of guesswork out of this for us by giving us a triad, we called this last week, a triad of Christ-likeness a three-part interconnected reality of what it means to follow Jesus for reals. And lest you think, who is John to tell me how to follow Jesus? Well, John is telling us as someone who has walked with Jesus physically, who has followed Jesus radically, who has became like Jesus essentially, and was commissioned by Jesus himself to teach us everything that he was taught by Jesus. At the very end of Jesus' ministry, before he ascended to heaven in Matthew chapter 28, he got his disciples together, whom John was definitely one of those, and he said, I I want you to go and I want you guys to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and I want you to teach them everything that I've commanded you, and I'm with you to the end of the age. And so what John does is he takes that up as his personal mission and call is to make disciples. And everywhere John makes disciples, he's teaching them this is what it means to follow and obey Jesus. I want to teach you what Jesus taught me. So John is coming from a place of having been with Jesus physically and has followed Jesus radically and has become like Jesus essentially. And he's teaching us this is what it means. And he says this. This is the triad, according to John, of what it means to become Christ-like. Knowing Jesus, we talked about that last week, obeying Jesus, and the theme of pretty much the entire uh, sermon of 1 John, loving like Jesus. Knowing Jesus last week, obeying Jesus this week, and hopefully next week, loving like Jesus. And for John, these are all interconnected realities. How do you know Jesus? John would say, by obeying Jesus. What is obeying Jesus? Loving like Jesus. What is loving like Jesus? Well, that's obeying Jesus. Well, what does it mean to obey Jesus? It means that you really know Jesus. And they're all interconnected. And so what we want to do is kind of want to separate each of them. Okay, what does John mean? Or what does the scriptures, New Testament teach about obeying Jesus? So tonight, let's talk about that. Look at verse 3 with me as we get into this. Again, these are all interconnected realities. So John says, we know that we have come to know Jesus if we keep his commands. We, have, we know that we have come to a, a, a personal experience of Jesus if we keep his commands. And what John is doing here is he's beating up on the false idea that we can, quote, know God 
just by, because, just by the fact that we think that we've experienced God. Well, how do you know you know God? Well, I've experienced God. See, knowledge of God or knowing God was a favorite term in ancient religion. In John's day, when he was writing this to his church or this church, when, when someone talked about knowing God, this was a very, this was a very common vernacular. Knowledge of God meant that someone had a mystical experience or a direct vision of the divine. Knowledge was purely spiritual attainment, and it really had nothing or little to do or hardly any connection at all with moral behavior. It had everything to do with experience. And so when someone said, I know God, what they were saying was that I had an experience with the divine. I came in contact with God through a vision, through a mystical experience, or whatever. And I hope you realize by now that this is not just an ancient sort of religious reality. This is the spirituality movement that's been happening in San Francisco since the 60s. One uh, yoga instructor and founder of an institute says this about modern spirituality. I think this captures it really well. He says, spirituality is anything that connects you to the exhilaration of being human. Discovering a new part of yourself and being fully alive. Spirituality can exist within, our, with, within or without religion. Some people find it in nature. Other people find it on other paths. This is exactly what John is saying. Oh, there's some people that think they know God. This is what John's beating up on, by the way. And this, is, this wasn't just ancient religion. One of my point is that this is very modern as well. There's people that think, well, I know God because I have an experience with the divine. I have a spirituality, therefore I know God. And this spiritual um, writer and founder of an institute and yoga instructor, he goes on to say that the ability to personalize your experience is one of the most beautiful things about modern spirituality. Modern spirituality is not that far off from ancient spirituality, which is what John is trying to beat up on here. And which basically what modern spirituality and ancient spirituality say is that it's really about your personal experience with the divine. Spirituality is basically finding that mystical experience in your life or some spark of the divine within you. And however you find that, if you find that by breathing or stretching or eating vegan or having multiple sex partners or hiking outside or going to church, whatever gets you spiritually high is okay. This is part why you can actually tell people in San Francisco that you go to church on Sunday. And not that many people trip out about that. If you go, I go to church, it's because where I swear I get my spiritual high. They would be like, oh, cool. That's what you do. We live in a pluralistic, very pluralistic city. That's good for you. That's cool. I do it differently. I do that by stretching and eating a certain way. You do that by going to church. Cool. Totally cool. We're talking about the same thing. And you're like, I'm not really talking about the same thing. And this is why, and so ancient Ancient and modern spirituality is all about the experience that you have, which is why you don't typically hear teachings on sin in your yoga class you're, or like your soul cycle class or whatever, right? Um, you're not ever like in Warrior One and the instructor says, I can see by the way that most of you look this morning that you have had too much to drink last night. I tell you, wine is a mocker and beer is a brawler and whoever is led astray by them is not wise. Okay. Warrior two. And that just like doesn't have ever happen. I mean, I don't think it happened. Doesn't happen in your soul side. They never teach on sin in those places. But look what John does here. He asks, Do you really want to know if you had a, a real experience with the divine? Do you really want to know that you had a real experience with the real authentic Jesus? Do you want to know that you know God? 
You know God. You've had experience in your life with Jesus. If so, if you've had an experience in your life with Jesus, you, there will be an ethical reaction to the teachings of Jesus. This is what John is doing. How do you know if you've really met Jesus? There might have been some really fuzzy, great emotional feelings, some great highs that you had in church or whatever. There was a great song that played. There was a great sermon that came on or something like that. There's something that you had. And John will poke at this a bit and go, do you, you want to know if you've really met the real Jesus? Then your life will have an ethical reaction to that. If you have met Jesus, you will become like Jesus. If you had an experience with Jesus, you'll follow Jesus' teachings. If you had a spiritual experience, there will be a new ethical reality in your life. This is what John is saying. See, one of the great tragedies of religion in our society in general is that we seldom bridge this gap between practice and profession, between behavior and what we believe. I mean, we might like profess all these great things about loving our neighbor and helping the poor and living in a committed community, but our actions are more often fraught with selfish ambition and vain conceit. This is how um, Dr. Martin Luther King said it. By the way, if you ever want a great commentary on 1 John, read Martin Luther King's collection of sermons called Strength to Love. It is incredible. And it's basically, all the sermons are take, not taken from 1 John, but basically about 1 John. Um, and he, in the intro, he basically says that. Anyway, this is what he says in one of his sermons. Speaking of the, this gap between belief and behavior, he says, how often are our lives characterized by the high blood pressure of creeds and the anema of deeds? Oh, come on, that's good. We talk eloquently about our commitment to the principles of Christianity, and yet our lives are saturated with the practices of paganism. This strange dichotomy, this agonizing gulf between the ought and the is represents the tragic theme of man's earthly pilgrimage. This, there's a dichotomy in our, between our doing and our saying, this chasm that we seldom bridge. But what John is saying is that if you come to know the real Jesus, this chasm will bridge. Your belief in knowing God and your behavior in becoming like God will start to fuse. It is inevitable for the follower of Jesus. If you've come in contact with the true Jesus, there will be ethical ramifications for that, and then you will become like Jesus. Now, what does that look like? Um, what does that obedience to Jesus begin to look like? Well, there's a little bit of fusion from last week's sermon here. So when I read this point, I, I'm going to fuse what I said last week um, so it sounds a, a, a little familiar into this week. Here's the beginning. I want to be as clear as I can. This is the beginning. If you're new to the Christian faith or you're checking it out for this evening and you're like, what is the Christian faith about? Here's like, in one sentence, what I, how I can describe it. And this, this, comes, this is what it means to know Jesus and obey Jesus. And here it is. It's on the screen. To know Jesus and, and obey Jesus is this. To know and study the life of Christ. To meditate on his life. To take in Jesus' life and teachings. Okay, so that was last week. We talked all about that last week. This means read the, read, the, read the New Testament, read the Gospels, take in his life, meditate on his life, his actions, his reactions, and if you don't start to find Jesus humorous, then you're not doing it right. Start to read them all and take them in. Okay, that's the first part, knowing Jesus. But here's the second part, and, and it's an underline, practice in every way um, and practice in every way to bring your own life into conformity with his life and teachings. 
This is the obedience part. Leave that up on the screen for a second. It, knowing Jesus and obeying Jesus is I, I take in the life and the teachings of Jesus, and then what I do is I, I bring into my own life, I practice in every way conformity with his teachings. So when he teaches on whatever he teaches on, I bring that into my life. So what Jesus teaches about money, I learn, I take in, and I start practicing with my own money. That's, that's, that's what it means to follow Jesus. What Jesus teaches about the poor, you learn, you take in, and you start practicing with the poor. What Jesus teaches about sex and marriage and singleness, you learn, you take in, and you start practicing in your sexuality and in your marriage and in your singleness. What Jesus teaches about authority and prayer and love, you learn, you take in, and you start practicing that as obedience to Jesus. This is what it means to know and then to obey Jesus. And this is when our life begins to be transformed by Jesus. And this is why John says, this is probably the best one line to describe what John is getting at in 1 John. 1 John 2.6, this is what obedience looks like, this is what love looks like, this is what following Jesus looks like. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Whoever claims to know Jesus must become like Jesus. Whoever says, I know him, takes on the teachings and the life of Jesus and starts to live accordingly. This is why I wanted to call this whole series Following Jesus for Reals. This is it. This is what it really means. This is just what it means to follow Jesus. And obedience to Jesus is becoming like Jesus and living like Jesus. But John takes this idea even deeper. John takes this idea into our loves and into our motivations. So look what he says in verse 15 through 17. This is the one that hits us pretty hard. Do not love the world. You're like, whoa, I actually do love the world. And he's saying, not, how do I not love the world? Do not love the world or anything in the world. And so John now is, is playing on our loves and our motivations. Do not love the world or, any, or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father can't cohabitate there. The, the, the love for the world and love for the Father can't commingle. They, don't, they, don't, they, they can't coexist. And he starts to define what is love for the world. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father but from the world. And what John says is the world and all of its lusts and all of its desires is passing away. So if you cling to that thing, you will pass away too. But if you cling to God and do the will of God, basically obedience to God, then you will live forever. God is not passing away. God is enduring. God is eternal. You cling to that, you will be eternal. You cling to the world, that's going to pass away. Fads will come and go. What's, what's, um, what's popular comes and goes. What's in comes and goes. Like, the world keeps moving at such a clip, and it keeps passing away, and you will too. Now, what does the word world mean? It's the word in Greek, cosmos. It basically refers to humanity organized against God. Therefore, it's neither the material world itself. So when, you, when I say don't love the world, you're like, but I love waterfalls. Like, I'm not saying not to love waterfalls. You're like, I love butterflies. And I love, like, that's not what it's saying here, okay? So you don't like, well, who cares about this world? It's like not love the world. You can't love, you know, Hawaii or whatever. That's not what it's saying, okay? I actually love that, love that place. So it's not the material world, nor is itself, it's not people per se. It's not like hate all people that are not Christian. That's not what it's saying at all. It, what should be hated, rather, is the spirit of the world. And he defines it. 
lust of the eyes. This is sensuality that has a huge emphasis on sexuality, of, our, of sexual sin. So lust of the eyes, it's sensual, everything we feel and want and see, basically how all magazines run, like you just want everything in a magazine, right? It's like the world run by that kind of stuff. And it's really kind of horrible because a lot of people in San Francisco work in advertising. You're like, wait, my whole industry is lust of the eyes. Like that's basically what I do. I make people want things by what they see. Like how do I reconcile this? You should take perspectives or whatever. You know, like, <laughs> like this is, th that kind of stuff fat passes away. And if you've ever worked in advertising, you're like, it's really, it does pass away. I'm not working internal stuff here. This, this doesn't feel that way. Lust of the eyes, sensuality, those things pass away. Materialism, which is basically the God of America. That's the lust of the flesh. It's all the stuff we want. And then pride of life, self-glorification. I mean, if, if we just said this, sensu uh, sensuality, materialism, self-glorification, you're like, yeah, that's pretty much our world summarized in three categories. And obedience to Jesus means that we live in this world, but we are not of this world. We don't, we're, we don't take those parts, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, part of life, and make them a part of our lives. We live in a world that runs on that, but we live completely differently. We live obedient to Jesus. Our love allegiance is to Jesus. We don't love lust of the eyes. We don't love lust of the flesh. We don't love, we don't love sensuality, materialism, self-glorification. That's not where our allegiance and our loves go to. Our love goes to Jesus. Our allegiance goes to Jesus. So when a materialistic society would have us believe that happiness consists in how much we make, what we own, <clears throat> where we work, and all the perks that come with all of that, we remember the words of Jesus. Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. When we would begin to submit to the temptation of a world rampant with sexual tolerance and promiscuity, a world gone wild with philosophy of self-expression, Jesus tells us that I tell you anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. When we would start to allow the seed of revenge and bitterness to be planted in our souls with hate towards our enemies, remember the words and teachings of Jesus. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. How we live in this world matters. To be a follower of Jesus means our love allegiance it goes to Jesus and goes to his teachings. So this also, this doesn't play out just on our love, but also plays on our motivation. Because our motivation of obedience must actually match Jesus' motivation. One way the Christian mystical writers would talk about imitating Christ was imitating Christ's motivation. This is like level two, by the way. Level one's, level one's like, I'm going to obey Jesus. I'm just going to do what he, Jesus says. Okay, what does Jesus say about marriage? I'm going to do that. What does Jesus say about money? I'm going to do that. What does Jesus say about the poor? I'm going to do that. That's level one. Level two is this. What did Jesus say about it, and what was his motivation in doing it? My motivation will start to match that. By the way, this is level two, okay? So you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Why, why are you getting advanced here? Because there's some people in this room that need to get more advanced. This is... The matching motivation is what spiritual writers would, mystical spiritual writers would sit, uh, Christian ones, would sit and go, we want to become like Jesus. And the way that we do that isn't just by obeying Jesus outwardly. It's actually matching our motivation to Christ's motivation. See, they would say our actions are less important than the reason we do them. So Christ acted 
not because it brought him pleasure or ultimately enhanced his own life. See, some, I think some of you in the room tonight, because I'm kind of a spiritual teacher, I teach at a church and, in San Francisco, so people, you might say, well, you're a spiritual teacher. Well, can you prove to me why following this here, it will enhance my life? That's kind of what we want. How will this bring me pleasure? How will this enhance my life? Well, level one would say you're saved from sin and guilt and shame and all that stuff. Level one says that. But level two is you, you start to act not out of a motivation that enhances your life or ultimately brings you pleasure. You act for a higher reason. Jesus did not act because, oh, this brings me pleasure or, oh, this ultimately enhances my life. He said, this is the Father's will and this will bring more life to other people's life. That was his motivation. Why do we live a life obedient to Jesus? Because it's God's will and it enhances the life of other people's life. So, so Jesus' perfect obedience is why we were here. Jesus, you know, there is, when Jesus uh, faced the end of his life and his death on the cross, you know that he didn't really want to go there. I mean, he did. He knew he was going there. But when it got right up to it, he was praying in this garden called the Garden of Gethsemane. And the Garden of Gethsemane was basically, Gethsemane means an olive garden. Not the olive garden, but a olive garden. <laughs> and that was a horrible end of it. Jesus praying in an olive garden. Anyway, um, it's a olive garden, a grove of olive trees, okay? Not, that was a really weird image. So, um, so Jesus is praying in, in a olive grove, and he doesn't actually want to go to the cross. And he says this to, the, to God, the Father. He says, Father, let this cup pass from me which basically means, I don't want to go through with this. I know that this, is, this will bring about redemption of the world. I know that, that this is your will, but I, I honestly, and I, I just don't want to do it. But however, however, the sentence, the sentence goes on, the prayer goes on, not my will, but your will. He didn't act because the cross brought him pleasure. He didn't act because it only enhanced his own life. There was a moment where he acted out of sheer obedience to the Father's will and to bring more life into our lives. Obedience starts working on our love allegiance when we start to think about the motivation for our obedience. See, obedience in itself it may not necessarily be good and may at times possess neither transforming nor redemptive power because our motivation for obedience might be just as self-serving as disobedience. We can obey for the same reasons you disobey, because of the self. And self is a hard thing to let go of. Some of you guys obey here. You obey God because in a way you're trying to control God. If I obey, you think, then God has to bless me. If I give this much amount of money away and I do this all this stuff and I serve here, then God has to give me what I pray for. He better bring me a spouse because I've been so faithful. He better bring, give me kids because I've done this. Like He has to. He owes me. And so you obey to, to try to manipulate God. Or we obey out of fear. And we, and we fear because we are like, if I, if I, if, if I don't obey, then God's going to strike me dead. And basically, our obedience then comes out of a place of self-protection or self-preservation, and therefore is more about us than it is about God. But as we move forward in our obedience to Jesus, our motivation, God has a way of conspiring with our life to bring about the motivation that is needed. I will act, God, and I will obey you, not because 
this is necessarily going to bring, bring me pleasure, though ultimately I know it will, but in the moment it's not. And not because it enhances my life. It might in the future, but not right now. But because it's your will, God, and this is I'm giving my life for someone else. Most of the time, especially in our young years of life, and I don't know what young years of life mean. If, if you feel young, then this is you. Um, most of our motivation uh, comes from uh, something that writers call the pleasure principle, which means we make uh, decisions based on um, what brings us pleasure. And we, don't, we do this without even thinking. We live, we work, we date, we spend time with, go to the church, go to the places, take the meetings that by and large bring us pleasure. So we look at our calendar and the things that we have planned, things that we're doing, um, by and large bring us pleasure. And the, the church that we go to and the people that we spend time with and whether we go to a community group or not go to a community group, whether we engage in the season or not engage in the season, whether who we spend, who we date or whatever, all this stuff brings us pleasure. And we live our life like this without even thinking. And the process of maturing in our discipleship to Jesus is God conspiring with our life to break the pleasure principle as a source of motivation in our lives. Breaks it. And God spends years doing this, bending our will, bending our lives around true discipleship to where we act out of, more out of obedience to God and more for the good of others than we do things that bring us pleasure. And you might have gone through this. Maybe you haven't. Maybe as you sit here tonight, you're like, I haven't done that. And I hope, my hope is that I speak into this well enough as a pastor to go, there will become a day where that will happen, where you will face something, whether difficulty in your life or your marriage or your singleness, where you're like, I don't want to do this. Doing this brings me no pleasure. And then God's like, and you will go through a season where that won't be the reason why you make decisions. You will make decisions out of obedience to me and because for the life of the world. And eventually that will bring you so much joy, but maybe not yet, maybe not in 10 years, maybe not in 20 years, but eventually your soul, your life will terraform around obedience to Jesus and that will bring you more joy than, than, than anything else. Because Jesus is using our discipleship to bend our life into conformity to his will. And there's, there's a whole season of your life, guys, and, and this happens particularly when you're younger. And I guess I'm saying this as someone who's transitioning from being younger to not being as young anymore. So I'm like feeling this in my soul like big time. So I'm just, I'm just trying to share out of this place because you might not be there yet, but you will be there one day. And I'll say that it's a hard stage of discipleship because this is what discipleship looks like for the first few years of many years. For me, it's 15, 20 years of Christian discipleship looks like this. Drinking in the person, the teaching of Jesus to a degree where I'm struggling to cultivate a relationship with Jesus, okay? That's part of discipleship. And then keeping my moral life in line with his teachings. And then practicing both charity and justice in my life. And then being involved in a church community, being deeply committed to a church community. And then I work towards keeping my heart mellow and gracious and forgiving. Okay, so that's, like, that's basically what discipleship looks like for years. And you might be there right now. Like you're, you're like struggling to go, I'm still struggling to drink in the person teaching of Jesus and cultivating a personal relationship with him. That's where I'm at right now. Okay, great. Do that. Keep doing that. Maybe you guys are like, I'm trying to struggle to keep my moral life in line with his teachings. And that is really hard for me right now. 
Like, it's a daily struggle to my morality in line with Jesus' teachings. Keep struggling with that. Maybe your thing is practicing charity and justice in the city has been a struggle for you, and that's where you're at in your discipleship of Jesus right now. Keep doing that. Or it might be just hard to stay committed to this church. Like, this church is a hard church to stay committed to. Keep struggling with that. Maybe it's your work towards keeping your heart mellow and gracious and forgiving when this world just keeps beating the beating you up. <laughs> Keep working at that. And what happens is when you work at this for long enough, Jesus, because of all of our passionate energies of our life, Jesus has to use all of that, that, that those demands of discipleship, and bend our life towards his will. He's using all of those things, knowing that we can't get out of them, using all of those things to bend our life towards his will. And this is how he develops in us maturity. This is how he develops in us Christian discipleship. All of these are the essential demands of Christian discipleship. And, and all of our passionate, youthful energies like fight against this. And God is like bending us, slowly bending us toward his will. To where our lives look like his and... <clears throat> Our motivation starts to match his. And this is very hard. And it should be hard. See, if you only obey God when it seems reasonable or profitable to you, that really isn't obedience. That's you agreeing with Jesus. If, Je if you're like, hey, you know what? I really think we should love each other. And Jesus say, hey, you better love each other. You're like, cool, I'll do that. You're not, you're, you're kind of like, I agree with you. It's like when you find someone who has, uh, that has the same taste in music as you do, and you say to them, you have good taste in music. You're like, do they? <laughs> they have your taste in music, and therefore you think it's good. But do they have good taste in music? Or maybe you have really bad taste in music, and they have bad. So you're, not, you're just agreeing with Jesus. You're not obeying him, you're just agreeing with him. Obedience to Jesus happens when you yield your life and authority to him, even when you don't agree with him. That's where obedience kicks in. You're like, I think I should go this way. And Jesus is like, but this is the way. Walk in it. You're like, but I don't, I, don't, I don't see that to be reasonable or profitable. Jesus is like, follow me. That's obedience. It's not like, oh, Jesus, you know what? You've convinced me. I, I think it's profitable. And I'm like, I'm going to go this way now. See, we don't, we don't like this as, as, as people that I have to think for ourselves. And this last week I was in a... Um, <clears throat> I was on a personal retreat, and Big Sur, it wasn't like a hippie thing. It was just like being alone with Jesus for a couple days, and, and, um, and it was really good. And I was on my way home from Big Sur, and um, I was on the one, driving Big Sur. Have you guys done that on the one? Beautiful, like, right? And then um, you get some tourists that get there, and they get like really slow, and they want to take everything in. And so they drive like five miles an hour. And so I'm like five cars deep, and this person's driving so slow. And everything I... All the great stuff that happened in my personal street was gone in like eight minutes. I was surprised. I'm like, wow, it's already gone. Look, oh, look at this. And I'm like, come on, person. Are you kidding me? Like, pull. There's a law. Like, if you have so many cars behind you, you're supposed to pull over. And I'm like, I'm just like, I'm about to honk my horn. I'm like, no, I can't honk my horn. So I'll just like um, passive aggressively speed up and slow down and then speed up. Anyway, so um, I'm, do, I'm doing this. And I'm like, why am I so frustrated? And and I, I, I realize that what's so infuriating about being behind someone who's driving slow and you can't pass them is that I had to allow someone else to set the pace of my life for me. And I hate that. 
I don't want to drive 20 miles an hour. I want to drive 35, maybe 45. I don't want to go 20. I, who are you to set the pace of my life? I have somewhere to be. And, and we, we, we kind of understand this. Like, w- when we obey Jesus, we yield and we allow Jesus to set the pace of our lives. And this feels, what obedience feels like, it's like being, sometimes being stuck behind someone like, why are you setting the pace of my life at 15? This is what it feels like in our bodies sometimes. When Jesus sets the pace and the boundaries of our sexuality, when Jesus sets the pace and the boundaries of our forgiveness, when he sets the pace and the boundaries of our authority, when he sets the pace and the boundaries of our money, that seems really hard. That feels like, Jesus, do you, do you know what I'm going through? And you, you lived a long time ago. I don't know if you like, know what's going on right now. I don't know if I can trust you to set the pace and the boundaries of my life right now. That's what obedience to Jesus feels like. Now, are you ready for this? Now, perhaps you're not ready. Perhaps you're like, I was checking out Christianity, but I think I'll stick to yoga. Like, this is, <laughs> sounds pretty intense. Are you ready for this sort, of, this sort of life with Jesus? And perhaps you're not ready. And so I'll close with a story. A quote. And it's not even Jesus found the ready. Jesus called Nathaniel, and Nathaniel lacked openness. Nathaniel wasn't ready. Jesus called Philip, and Philip lacked simplicity. Philip wasn't ready. Jesus called Simon the Zealot. Simon lacked nonviolence. Simon wasn't ready. Jesus called Andrew. Andrew lacked a sense of risk. Andrew wasn't ready. Jesus called Thomas. Thomas lacked vision. Thomas wasn't ready. Jesus called Judas. Judas lacked spiritual maturity. Judas was definitely not ready. Jesus called Matthew. Matthew lacked a sense of social sin. Matthew wasn't ready. Jesus called Thaddeus. Thaddeus lacked commitment. Thaddeus wasn't ready. Jesus called James the lesser. James lacked awareness. James wasn't ready. Jesus called James and John the sons of thunder. James and John lacked a sense of servanthood. James and John were not ready. Jesus called Peter the rock. Peter lacked courage. Peter was not ready. The point, you see, is that Jesus doesn't call the ready. Jesus calls the willing. And for some of us, that's what it might feel like tonight. I don't know if I'm ready to follow Jesus like that. And you know what? Jesus doesn't necessarily call the ready. Are you willing? Are you willing to follow Jesus? Are you willing to go, I am willing to step into obedience to you. I am willing to ask you to search me and know me, and if there's parts of my life that don't align, I will enter into this lifelong struggle, it feels like, to obey, to follow. And I know at the other side of it, it's a life that endures, not a life that passes away. Let's pray. Lord, I ask tonight that you would give us this sort of faith to say we're willing We want to follow you. We're willing to follow you. We might not be ready to follow you. We might not know, this is exactly how I'll do it this week, but we're willing. I pray, God, that you would move us to to our our hearts to faith, to trust that as we we follow you, you will start to to make this, this stuff a reality in our lives. And I pray that you would start to mellow us, God. Sometimes I get this picture of an 
infant or a baby thrashing around. And sometimes um, we just need to be held or need to be swaddled or need to be like brought near your heart and go, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. I have you mellow out. And we might feel that that's where it's at tonight. We've tried maybe the last few weeks to get our lives in order or under control or like our sin tackled or whatever, and we just feel like it's not going anywhere. I pray that we, I just feel like you're saying and sense that you're saying tonight that that struggle is part of it. Keep struggling with that. Your grace is sufficient. If we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is a way that you're meeting us in it, in the struggle. If we're not struggling, that's probably a problem. It means that we're just giving in to all of this stuff and we don't even care anymore. I pray that you would reignite the people that, are, that feel like they're not struggling with sin because they've just given in to it. Start that struggle again tonight. That we would, we would use our energies to work out our, our salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in us to will and to do according to your good will. We work, you work. That's a divine mystery, Lord. It's mystical, but I pray that would begin to happen tonight. So as we come before you and we lay our sin before you, we lay our shortcomings before you, we lay our struggle before you, would you meet us there? And we say, Lord, we're willing. Call us. We want to follow you, Lord. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.